in that truth is where we find a richness of for life here and now and such a hope for life beyond Christmas, uh, celebrating with uh, great joy, the great, no, uh, the great joy that the good news brings. Uh, it is great to see you, especially between uh, Christmas and New Year when the days uh, kind of lose. Nobody really knows what day it is between Christmas and New Year. It's kind of Christmas Day, Boxing Day, and then it's somewhere between the 27th and the 30th, maybe the 31st. You don't really know what day it is. So congratulations for making it to church on Friday. Uh, it is Friday, so we are gathered together. Uh, we're going to keep the teens with us this morning. They'll go back out next week uh, to start their uh, own study as we begin next Friday, uh, a new study on Friday mornings through the book of Esther. Uh, and we'll talk more about that after the service, but today uh, we are talking about this truth, memento mori, uh, how death inspires life. Uh, maybe you think that it's a really strange way to end the year, uh, but hopefully in 30 minutes or so, uh, you'll think very, very differently. Uh, memento mori, if you've not heard of it before, is a Latin phrase that means really simply, remember that you will die. So again, you might think it's a really strange way uh, to end a year. I think it's a great way uh, to end a year together. Uh, to begin a new year together. I think it's the perfect uh, truth for us to remember as a year comes to an end. It might sound a bit morbid, uh, but really it is, it's not morbid. I think it's just magnificent. So hopefully in the next 30 minutes uh, you will agree with me. Uh, if not, we're talking about it anyway. So uh, this week, what's the next week? Sunday is New Year's Eve. So around Saturday, Sunday, Monday uh, of next week, People will make lots of New Year's resolutions, how they're going to live uh, this coming 12 months, things that they're going to start, uh, things that they might even consider stopping. And these four are among the top uh, most commonly made New Year's resolutions. So things like, I'm going to improve my physical health, I'm going to take control of our finances or my finances. I'm going to spend more time, quality time, with friends and family. And up there almost every year is I'm going to read more, uh, hopefully, for the born-again believer. That starts with Scripture, but just reading more is never a bad idea anyway, especially if you can read stuff that was written from before you were born. Uh, Personally, though, as great as these things are, I can think of no better, greater resolution for the next 366 days than to remember daily that you will die. And again, it sounds a bit morbid, but if you really take this on, really internalize this, it will transform the way that you live. Uh, the earliest known use of it in kind of pop culture was, uh, as a, along with uh, lots of other stuff, uh, was, comes through William Shakespeare. Uh, in the late 1500s, in his play, Henry IV, 
we read or hear, I make as good use of it as many a man doth of a death's head or a memento mori. It was uh, then, around the 1500s, and still is now, it's used to remind people about the impermanence of our human lives, as CJ just read for us. Um, we're going to come back to that passage very, very soon. Uh, so if we go all the way back to kind of the 8th century BC, all the way through to the 5th century AD, was filled, literature, art, filled with references to the inevitability of your death. But it's kind of used in different language. Uh, and as time went on, this truth of memento mori was often, as we see here, uh, visually, uh, physically depicted with a skull. Uh, and that's just a, a selection of uh, art and sculpture and stuff from a long, most of them from a long time ago. Uh, you can probably spot the, <laughs> the more modern one. And it was everywhere for a long time in art and literature. Um, during the Roman Empire, time of the Roman Empire, during the, the Roman triumphal return, a general comes back into town having conquered uh, places and peoples and having done what the Romans did. Uh, it's rumored that somebody as, as part of this procession would stand behind him with a skull uh, to remind him that, you know, you're going to die as well one day. So enjoy this because this is not going to last forever. If you've got a really, really keen mind, uh, a really good memory, you'll remember we've, uh, we've used this picture before. Uh, we used it in February to talk uh, through 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and there are two uh, bowls of incense as part of that procession as well. Just thought that was interesting. We talked about how the believer is the fragrance of Christ, the, uh, a burning incense to those around him. Uh, there's a second century Christian writer, Tertullian, who wrote that this was standard practice, the carrying of a skull, but evidence for his claim is uh, less than present. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice idea that somebody followed him, the general with a skull, but possibly just he's made it up, but we're not sure. Uh, so how then does this all fit into a Christian worldview? Because we don't gather as the church uh, for a history lesson. Uh, how does it fit into a Christian worldview, and why is it still so very applicable to you and to me now? Uh, so if you do have a Bible there, uh, and I hope that you do, I'd love you to join me in Isaiah chapter 40, as CJ just read for us. And we are going to read, as he did, uh, from... Verse 7, I think. No, it's not. It's not. 6. All people are like grass, and all the promises are like the flowers in the field. The grass dries up, the flowers wither when the wind sent by the Lord blows on them. Surely humanity is like grass. The grass dries up, the flowers wither, but the decree of our God is forever reliable. The very, very simple uh, and very humbling truth from God via the prophet Isaiah is that you and I, all people, are like grass. Now, given where Isaiah lived, uh, where he was based, it's 
very, very likely that he uh, is thinking of the, the hills around Judea and how after there was just the, the slightest drop of rain, they just spring into uh, a lovely green carpeted space. And if you've lived here uh, through any kind of rain, which is not very common, but it does happen, if you've lived here, particularly around Saar, where there are empty plots of land, every time it rains, what happens? Don't say floods, I know it floods. But after it rains and the floods subside, usually a few days after the 20 minutes of rain, up pops grass, flowers, life, where you would look at before and just think it's impossible. Um, And it's very, very likely that's what Isaiah is picturing here as God is giving him this word. And it's very, very true. If you think about our lives as people, they begin with beauty. Babies are beautiful. Even the ones that are uh, less than beautiful, they're still lovely to look at. Uh, lives, our lives begin with beauty, with new growth. It seems like those little people will never stop growing, uh, developing, expanding, and flourishing. And we transform as if by some means of supernatural metamorphosis. We, we go from this frail and helpless infant into first little miniature people, uh, and then eventually we reach physical maturity, and it kind of feels like the whole world is laid out before us, like the grass that we can't even see at one point. There's a tiny bit of rain, it grows up, and it's just beautiful to look at where there was nothing now, there is life. And it seems like that growth uh, will never, ever stop. Uh, if you've got teenage boys in the house, or if you're about to have teenage boys in the house, it seems like they'll just never, ever, ever stop growing and eating. So just if that's in your future, prepare. Uh, but as Isaiah reminds us, the grass dries up, and then the things that we do, the things that we say, the flowers in the field, they wither as well. Our once, well... They're not, are they? But what feel to us like our once indestructible bodies start to fail us. We begin to stand just a little bit uh, frailer, with more frailty than before. Where there was once firmness and strength and flexibility in all of our joints and silence when we stood up and sat down, now there are noises and there are creaks and it kind of hurts and your back hurts even though you've not really done anything that might hurt your back. And we think, what on earth is happening to us? We've turned that corner from being a, a newly sprouted blade of grass that's just full of grandeur and greatness and we've turned the corner towards our inescapable end, the grave. I did say that this is going to be a great way to finish the year, but we've got to accept these things before we get there. Uh, James 2 prompts us to consider the fragility and the fleetingness of our lives, maybe thinking way into the future. Maybe you've not got any creaks and clicks and aches. Maybe that's too far down the line for you, but maybe even thinking about tomorrow will help us to understand this. James 4.14 tells us, you do not know about tomorrow. What is your life like? You're a puff of smoke that appears for a short time and then vanishes. So if being a blade of grass and and thinking long into your golden years is too difficult, consider yourself a puff of smoke that's here today 
possibly not tomorrow. And so all of this to say, very, very simply and thoroughly, scripturally, for us to pretend to ignore that we're going to go down the way of all living things, to pretend that that's not going to be me, I'm going to break the mold, is to deny the fallen reality in which we live. And so, accepting our limitations, that we do have an end in sight. What does this do for us here and now? Why are we talking about this to finish off the year? Well, accepting that we have an end, that we will not live like this in our current states forever and ever and ever. Accepting that can somewhat counterintuitively inspire us to live to the fullest in the here and the now. Uh, Matthew McCulloch writes that facing up to the truth of our inevitable death leads us to a deeper hope in life. That sounds a little bit like these ideas don't go together. We face up to the truth that we are going to die, we'll have a better life. And as we, as we become more honest with ourselves about the truth, Each and every one of us, all of us in this room, face a physical death. As we accept that, and I can see it on some faces right now, we're drawn into grief. As we accept that we are going to die one day, it grieves us. And if it doesn't, we can talk with you afterwards, we can pray with you afterwards, because it should. It should grieve you that you're going to die, that everybody that you've ever met is going to die. We're drawn inescapably down into grief because we start to think about the things that we're going to miss. We start to think about the people that we're going to miss, the places that we're going to miss, the points in our lives that we feel like really define our lives. We think, I'm not going to be around to do those things anymore. Maybe things like Christmas will pop up in your mind. I'm not going to, there's going to be a Christmas day, my family is going to be around the table, and I'm not. And that should grieve you, that should upset you a little bit. And if it doesn't, again, there's a a problem. Because grieving over death is very, very natural. There is no shame in grieving a death, being genuinely upset that death has happened. It is humanly very, very healthy to grieve a death. And it is also theologically very, very accurate. Now, we're not here to gamble and we're not here to bet, but I would confidently assert that the last time a loved one died, you didn't think, I'm really sad, and that makes me very theologically very accurate. Now, it's kind of a fringe benefit to, to knowing this kind of stuff, but it is. It's, it's humanly very healthy. It's theologically very, very accurate to grieve a death because our sadness is part of the proof that this was never meant to be the case for humanity, that death is wrong. 
that death is a consequence of the fall. If you've got a Bible there, uh, just flick back with me to Genesis chapter 2. We've got the the big picture creation story in Genesis 1, and then as is very typical of the, the time and the style, we revisit it and we add more detail in Genesis 2. Genesis 2, verse 9, if you're a highlighter, an underliner, this is perfect for you. So Genesis 2, 9 says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow from the soil, every tree that was pleasing to look at and good for food. Now the tree of life, we want to underline that, highlight that, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the middle of the orchard. We move down that passage a little bit. Genesis 2.16 says, Then the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat fruit from every tree of the orchard, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you must surely die. So you can eat everything in this orchard, including the tree of life. God's original design for humanity was not to face a physical death. Life was the design, and life is the design. Life is God's plan for you, not death. And so all of that to say, grieving a death is 100% the right thing to do. And to be self-aware enough of the inevitability of your death, then, is to welcome that grief into your life. But as a born-again believer in the risen Jesus, we grieve death not as those who don't have any hope. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. And because in death, when we really accept it, when we, when we go down into grief, it is in death that we experience the richest life, both here and now, momentarily, but also into eternity. And that's a really nice uh, flow of how this process looks. We accept that we're going to die. Those around us that we love will die. That leads us into grief. And as we're there, that's where God meets us with the hope of life. And honestly, it, it, it grieves me that the most poignant and personal truths that we can share with one another are only shared when someone's about to die. When life is leaving us or somebody else, then all these truths come out. How different our very, very short grass smoke transient existence would be if we regularly and routinely told the people in our lives that we love that we do, in fact, love them. Because you might not have that chance. Everybody assumes that there's going to be this lovely, calm, deathbed scene. And you're going to fall asleep very quietly, surrounded by your closest friends. And for most people, it doesn't happen. I remember the first time as the pastor of the church that I went to the hospital because somebody was, for all accounts and purposes, dead. This uh, person had had what the doctors uh, called a giant brain aneurysm. 
And it was, it was so heartbreaking to watch this person's family come one at a time and say all the things that they wish they'd said before their loved one had this unexpected, unforeseen, and unavoidable accident. How different would our families, churches, friendships, relationships be if everyone around us knew what we thought about them? We've said before that a church in particular should be a place where nothing good goes unsaid. How different our lives would be if everybody around us knew really knew how valued, appreciated, respected, and how special to us they were. It, honestly, it grieves me. I've been seeing it a couple of times in person. It grieves me that these truths only surface when death is imminent or, heartbreakingly, when death has already taken another life. And so momentarily, here and now, the truth of our inevitable death brings the richest life to us. Because those are the things that people remember. What you said, how you behaved around them. Not what you cooked for Christmas dinner six years ago. Where you ordered that turkey from. The wrapping paper that you used. What they remember is how you felt about them. And the fact that you told them. And so accepting that there is a death in our future brings such a richness to our life here and now. And death hurts. It is rubbish. There's no denying that. Anything, anything that we experience, anything that we live through that contradicts who God is and his design for us is going to hurt. It's going to feel wrong. It's going to grieve us. But, again, for the born-again believer, we don't stop there in grief. Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Paul to the Corinthians then tells us that for those who choose to trust in the suffering servant, those who've put their, their faith and their belief in the sacrificial Savior, death no longer has the ultimate and, and last sting. Death is the eternal and our permanent enemy is no more. First uh, Corinthians 15 Paul is on this big, long explanation about resurrection, about life after death, about eternity. And he writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, starting in verse 54, he writes, Now, when this perishable puts on the imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will happen. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a death that is ours for being fallen humans. Jesus has conquered that death, and as a consequence, as a result of that, Paul says, So then, dear brothers and sisters, be firm. Do not be moved. Always be outstanding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Paul's telling the Corinthians there, and God is 100% saying the same thing to you today, that Jesus has defeated death in his resurrection. We've said earlier this year, maybe at the end of last year, uh, that his resurrection guarantees logically, 
and theologically your own resurrection if you're in him by grace and through faith. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. And the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Paul tells the Corinthians as part of that wider passage that, again, part of what Jesus defeated with his sacrificial and redemptive death on the cross and then his glorious bodily resurrection is death itself. He says the last enemy to be eliminated is death. For he has put everything in subjection under his feet. And this means, for the born-again believer in Jesus, that the end of our earthly existence, our lives as we're living them now, here in the flesh, is not actually the end. Because your resurrection is, if you're in Christ by faith, theologically inevitable and as inescapable as your death. And so, for you and me here now, accepting this, accepting that there is a physical death in our future unless Jesus comes back first. I know that. Unless he comes back first, there is a physical, earthly death in all of our futures. Accepting this, being grieved by this, finding hope through this will enrich how we live day by day but comfort us in knowing that there is eternal life beyond. And we've said this before, we'll no doubt say it again, that what we believe about tomorrow, tomorrow's beliefs define today's behaviors. What we think is coming, what we know is coming, defines how we behave in the build-up to what is coming. The best example I can give uh, is, again, is here, life in Bahrain. So many people arrive with a very fixed-term way of thinking. I'm going to be here for two years until Uncle Sam puts me somewhere else. I'm going to be here for four years and uh, six months, a week and two days, because I need to save up just this particular amount of money, and then I'm gone. Oh, I'm here for two years, I'm just going to teach and see the world, and I'm moving on somewhere else. And then you end up staying for ten, because you love it. Um, <laughs> but many, lots of people, most people here know that there is a day that they're going to leave. And again, for those of you in the military, you know that. Usually you know that date before you even arrive. You know when you're leaving before you even arrive. And so as a result of that, because you know there's a, a departure coming, you're going to do all these things in the time that you've got here. You're going to go to the fort, and you're going to get your picture taken in the arch. You're going to feed a camel just once, because <laughs> they stink. You're going to do it once, because that's what you do here. You're going to book all your flights and see all these places that you're never going to live as close to ever, ever again. You're going to live and serve and thrive in this beautiful international church because it won't be here when you leave. All that to say that what we know is coming defines how we behave in the meantime. And as people who are, again, logically, theologically certain about what our future holds, as people that, who accept that, yeah, there is an unavoidable, inescapable bodily death in my future unless... Jesus comes back first. As people who know that and accept that, who are grieved by that, 
in that truth is where we find a richness of, for life here and now and such a hope for life beyond that death. Uh, Je again, Jesus says in John chapter 12, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. The one who loves his life destroys it, and the one who hates his life in this world guards it for eternal life. He's saying the same things with different words, with different examples. He's not talking about life in Bahrain. He's talking about agriculture. But the truth is the same. That his resurrection is very, very simply the beginning of the death of death. And we know that. And so in the meantime, in our short term, in our here and now, accepting that death is coming for all of us is not morbid. It's all right to talk about. It's not a cause for misery. It should inspire us to live each day to the fullest. Those people that you love are not going to be here forever. They are just like grass. They are like the flowers. Their life is a puff of smoke, just like yours. Tell them how much they mean to you. Don't wait, because you will regret it, for sure. Take the chances. Seize the opportunities that God puts in your path. Don't wait for things to one day, maybe, perhaps, get better. Do something about it. I love that passage in Nehemiah where they know a threat is coming. They know they're going to be attacked. And instead of just being super spiritual and sitting in the corner and praying, instead of just getting busy to protect themselves, they do both. We pray to our God and station the guard to protect ourselves. Do something about your life now. Again, one last example. In John 10, again, Jesus is speaking, and he, he says with another example that life in its natural course results in death. But he came to give his followers, those who believe him, those who trust in him, he came to give his followers abundant, overflowing life beyond how we experience it now. Those who follow him, we read, come in, and then go out the other side. Yes, there is a death in our life, but it is not the end. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. And so, as we prepare to turn the calendar to a new year, a fresh start in many ways, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in raising from the dead, we can accept death. We can grieve death, and we should grieve death. But we can also never lose sight of the hope of eternal life beyond death. And we never lose sight of the truth that that hope is only found in the person and through the work of Jesus and your faith. Amen? Amen. Amen.